We're in the middle of a series um, just on God, God himself. We're letting the Bible form our understanding of who he is. Our goal is not only knowledge. Our goal uh, pushes past just knowledge onward toward love. Not just knowledge of God, but love for God. Our aim is to have our affections changed. To love other things less and love God more. By means of learning truth about him. We talked two weeks ago about the desire to know God. That's how we began, just with the idea of the desire to know him more. That was two weeks ago. Last week, we spent time talking about the cost of knowing him. The reality that it costs us something to know him better, body and soul. Today, in verse Five, we are directed to look at the whole question of knowing God from his perspective, from his point of view. And we're directed to the question, is God willing to be known? You know, a young man can have the desire to get to know a young lady better. He can be willing to pay the cost to get to know her better. He can be willing to pay the $25 to buy the cheeseburgers and the milkshakes. He can have the desire and he can be willing to pay the cost. But there's still one more thing that's necessary, isn't there? She has to say yes. She has to be willing to be known better. She has to say, yeah, I'm willing to have that cheeseburger and that milkshake with you. Well, and we might desire to know God better. We might really, really want that. We might even be willing to pay the cost of knowing God better. God must be willing to be known. We don't have any power on our own to make that happen. Unless God is willing to be known known by humans, we just wait. And we can't make it happen on our own. And verse 5 of Exodus 34 actually sets before us the three ways that God has demonstrated concretely that, yes, I am willing to be known by you. Verse 5, just in itself, and that's the only verse we're going to talk about this morning. In verse 5, we see laid out before us the three ways that God has concretely demonstrated to humanity, to me, and to you. Yes, I will be known by you. I will be known better, even by you. So let's read the text before we begin. We'll begin in verse 1, just to set the context, talking about this question of, is God willing to be known? And we're only going to... Talk about verse 5, as I mentioned. Verses 1 through 5. Now, if you're able and if you're willing, let's stand together one more time to honor uh, the reading of the word. This is Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 through 5. 
The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we ask humbly that you would be pleased to bless the reading of your word and the giving of attention to your word this morning, and that you would cause it uh, to bear fruit in the lives of those listening, that that fruit would be greater love for you through the knowledge of your person that's given to us here. And we pray for Jesus' sake and in his holy name. Amen. Please be seated. God's willingness to be known is, first of all, demonstrated by his condescension. That's the first thing that we learn as we get into verse 5. God's willingness to be known is, first of all, demonstrated by his condescension. God has condescended to mankind. We read that the Lord descended in the cloud. God came down. The high and the mighty came down to the weak and lowly. We call that condescension. Now, we won't appreciate this idea of God's condescension to man unless we remember two things about God. First of all, God is perfect in holiness. We're remembering two things about God to appreciate his condescension to us, okay? And here's the first one. God is perfect in holiness. There is nothing impure in his being or his character. Nothing. Every thought, every intention, every act, every word of God is good. He is perfect in holiness. Very hard for us to conceive of, of what that means because in our own being we are so fallen and so impure. But we understand, we confess the truth that we know from the scriptures that God is perfect in holiness. Secondly, God experiences perfection of relationship. God is perfect in holiness and God experiences perfection of relationship. Within his own being, within the three persons of the Godhead, God already experiences perfect relationship. If we didn't know better, we might think, 
Maybe God is needy in the area of relationship, and that's why he reaches out to us and wants to get to know us better. And that's why relationship with God is possible. Perhaps he's needy in some way and lacking in that area. No, it's just the opposite. Completely the opposite. From eternity past, God has enjoyed Perfect relationship within the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a relationship of love. In John 5, we read that the Father loves the Son. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything that he's doing. We read about the Father's love for the Son, not just there, but in lots of places. And then we come to John 14 and we read for the only time in all of scripture. Isn't this incredible? One time. And it only need be one time, but it's there. One time, John 14, we read that the son loves the father. I do as he has commanded me so that the world may know that the son loves the father. Within the Godhead, God knows what it's like To love another person. God knows the feeling of loving another person. And God knows the experience of being loved by another. Perfectly. That's God. God has that relationship box checked already. And always has. Now, what do we know about ourselves and how we handle relationships? Well, well, we try, don't we? We try to handle our relationships with each other well, but in spite of our best efforts, we hurt each other. And we get crossways with each other. And we struggle, and we experience all kinds of fracture and pain, and sometimes there's healing, and sometimes there's not. Even with people that we love very much. That's just the reality of being in relationship with other humans. Sin is part of the equation. And what do we do when relationships become hard and when relationships become awkward? We put distance between ourselves and the other person. We we start to move away. We take steps away. These are some of the realities of human relationships. If relationships within the Trinity are marked by perfection, we would have to confess that if there's one word that describes our relationships as humans, it's imperfection. And even pain. Remember that after the fall... Genesis 3, the common denominator between the consequences for woman and the consequences for man is pain. Pain in childbearing. Pain in working the ground. It's the consequence that sin has wrought upon us. That's certainly the case in our relationships as well. There's pain. Now we're in position to appreciate 
the condescension of God to be known by us. God needing nothing, enjoying already perfection of relationship and knowing already that we are impure and we struggle in relationships. Knowing already that there will be times when we are angry with him and we question him and times where we will just flat out walk away from him and on purpose do actions that we know are against what he has told us. Having all of these perfections about him and knowing all of these things about us, God nevertheless came down to us and has made himself available for relationship with you. Think about it, Christian. The Father, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have expanded the bounds of their perfect fellowship to include you from the Twin Cities. Have you appreciated that about God? The fact that he already has a perfect son who he couldn't be more pleased with and who his love for couldn't be more intense. And nevertheless, he has chosen to set his affection also on you. You, the imperfect one. On me, the imperfect one. Condescension simply means that the perfect God came down to be in relationship with the imperfect that happens here in Exodus 34, 5. And it's happened in your life too, Christian. That's one demonstration of God's willingness to be known is the simple fact that he chose to come down. The next demonstration that we see, the second demonstration of his willingness to be known is his presence. That's the middle part of verse 5. We read in very simple language that the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. He stood with him there. God simply standing, incredibly standing with Moses. One way that God has demonstrated his willingness to be known by us is in his condescension to us. Another way that he's demonstrated his willingness to be known is by his presence with us. Now, the reality that the Lord came and stood with Moses is a little bit mysterious, isn't it? Does this mean that God was present in some kind of a body? If that's true, what did the body look like? Apparently that body had legs or something that made God capable of standing. We're not told the answers to all these mysteries. Whatever it means, it certainly means this. Proximity. Moses and God were in close proximity. The physical distance between them was small. The Lord stood with him there. We could say 
they were together. God not only came down to him, God stood with him. Has it been a while, Christian, since you have just dwelt on the simple but profound reality that God is with me? I think with is one of the most beautiful words in the English language. Not because it sounds great when we say it. There's nothing special about how the word sounds. It's not particularly beautiful. It's because of what it means. It means I'm not alone. It means there is another in close proximity. That's the idea of with. You know, God could have determined to be known from afar. God very easily could have determined to be known from afar. He could have determined to be known by us without being present with us. We have these things in our own experience called long-distance relationships. Molly and I had a long-distance relationship for a while. 998 miles. That's the distance from Decorah, Iowa to Auburn, Alabama. 998 miles. And many, many, many letters and parcels made that trek of 998 miles from Norwegian land to Dixieland and vice versa. You can get to know someone from afar through the written word. Does anybody do that anymore? Certainly not the written word, maybe through e the emailed word. God could have just given us a book and said, here, know me this way. Know me through what I've written. You know, and he has done that, but not only that. He, he did give Moses the written word about himself on stone tablets. There were words written about him. He gave that to Moses, but that's not all he did. He came and stood with him. And God has given us the Holy Spirit-inspired written word in the Bible. But that's not all he's done. These same scriptures tell us that he's come to be with us. With us by means of being in us. By means of the person of the Holy Spirit of whom Jesus said, John 14... You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Christian, God is with you. God is in close proximity to you. How close? How close is God to you? What kind of proximity are we talking about? He's in you. That means he could not possibly be closer to you than he is. He could not be any closer to you than he is. Now, here's where I think we all need help, including me. What are we supposed to do with that information? 
What is the application of this truth that God is with me? Hardly know to know where to even start with that. What do we do? Well, let's do some practical application right here. Let's just stop and do this. What do you do with this truth that God is with you? Okay, three things. First of all, believe it. Believe that it's actually true, that this being, this person that I cannot see is actually with me. Just, first of all, believe that it's true. Every second of every day, whether you are exercising, sleeping, painting, teaching, walking down the hallway at school, you're studying, when you're shopping, when you're crying, even when you're sinning, even when you're sinning. Christian, God is with you. He has said so. His presence is promised. John 14, Matthew 28, Hebrews 13, all of All of those references contain this promise that God is with us. Start by simply believing that it's true. Secondly, rely on it. What do I do with the truth that God is with me? First of all, believe it. Second of all, rely on it. That just means appropriate the truth when you need it. When you're afraid, remember, God is with me. When you're lonely... God is with me. When everyone else has taken their turn at standing up in front of the class to give the speech, and it's finally your turn to get up, and you're terrified, remember, God is with me. When you're headed into surgery, or when your child is headed into surgery, God is with me. And in your very last hours, and you know it's your last hours on earth, God is with me. We rely on this information. We draw strength from it. We draw encouragement from it. We're comforted by it. No one else may be there, but God is with me. He's in proximity. He couldn't be closer. God is with me, believe it. God is with me, rely on it. God is with me, replicate it. Please replicate it. This is something that we can do for each other. Talking about practicing the the ministry of presence. Replicate it, Christian. Value simply being with. You know, when someone's going through a hard time, we usually think I've got, to, I've got to bring food or I've got to bring counsel or I've got to bring the right words. No, we need to bring ourselves and be in proximity. Job's three friends don't get credit for much. They weren't very good at giving counsel, but it wasn't all bad for them. They had a high point. They peaked early. 
Those seven days sitting with him in silence, those seven nights of sitting with him in silence, that was their high point. Can you imagine seven days and seven nights of just being with? meant the man didn't have to suffer alone. Others were, were there. Proximity over expertise. Proximity over explanations. Proximity over expectations of the other person. We can even replicate God's gift of presence. Okay, God is with me. Believe it. Rely on it. Replicate it. A little bit of practical application for us right here in the middle. Backing up to the big picture. God's willingness to be known is demonstrated in three ways in verse 5. First of all, in his condescension to man. Second of all, in his presence with man. And finally, in his revelation for man. And of course, we mean mankind. Man and woman. Mankind. His revelation for Man. God not only uh, descended, he also stood with. God not only stood with, he also proclaimed. That's what we see at the end of verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. God talked about himself. That's what's going to happen in verse 6. We're going to get there next week. We're going to talk about the content of what he actually said. What does he say about himself? What is he like? What does he value? What does he do? All those things are coming. We're not talking about the content of the revelation today. We're simply talking about the fact of it. The fact that it happened. The fact that God has told us things about himself. Things that we wouldn't otherwise know about him. Bible students have Two different ways of referring to God's revelation. One way is general revelation. Some things about God are part of general revelation. Those are things we can know about God just by looking at the world around us and what he's made and what the world is like. Romans 1 tells us about those things. God's eternal power, God's divine nature. These things we know just by observing the world around us. That's called general revelation. There's something else called special revelation. These are things that we wouldn't know about God except that he's told us in his word. We can't observe them just by looking around us. That's what we see in verse 6 and what's coming. Special revelation. God telling us in his own words what he's like. Now, this scene that we're looking at here in Exodus 34 is not the first time that God has revealed himself to mankind. Remember the garden. There was a revelation of himself to Adam and Eve. Remember even the burning bush. He's already revealed himself to Moses to a degree. Exodus 3. It's not the first time God has revealed himself. It won't be the last time God reveals himself to mankind. Jesus will come. Jesus, the full disclosure, the full revelation of God. Is coming. So interesting to read through the prologue of John. And if you're a note taker in your Bible and want to flip over to John 1, just for the briefest moment, 
so interesting to read through that prologue of John. That just means the first 18 verses of John 1 and see this exact same pattern present there. The same pattern that's present here in Exodus 34 of condescension, presence, and revelation is also present right at the beginning of John's gospel. And you can see it begin in verse 14. Talking, of course, about Jesus. Verse 14, and the word, that's Jesus, and the word became flesh. That's condescension, isn't it? For the eternal word of God to become incarnate. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Present. And then at the end, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That's revelation. He has shown us what God is like. That's what Jesus has done is revealed the Father in full color, high definition. Jesus who condescended to become incarnate. Jesus who dwelt among us. Jesus who revealed the Father to us. This is God's pattern in dealing with mankind. Now, it's typical of the human spirit to want to know God, but know him in our own way. It's not uncommon to hear a person say something like this, and maybe some of you This is what you would say about how you connect with God, but it's very common to hear a person say, you know, if I want to know what God is like um, and I want to spend time with God, um, if I really want to commune with God, I go to the mountains. Or I go outside at nighttime and I look up at the stars. Or just get me into creation, and that's where I find God. And, you know, God has revealed himself that way. He has made beautiful things. There are things we can know about God by looking at what he's done that's beautiful. But the great irony and the great mystery and the great necessity is to understand that the greatest self-revelation of God is not found by looking at the beautiful. It's found by looking at the ugliest and hardest thing to look at. The greatest self-revelation of God is only found by looking at a man slaughtered. At a son crucified. A man of whom Isaiah wrote. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. We have to look at a suffering man so maltreated that he no longer looks like a human hanging from a cross. We wonder if God is willing to be known. Look at the cross and look at the lengths to which God has gone to in order to be known. 
in order to be seen for who he is. And in order to be approached. And anyone may approach him now. No qualifications or resume is necessary. The only requirement is that you throw away your qualifications in your resume. And approach him simply saying to him, God, I am a sinner. Have mercy on me. Save me by accepting the blood of your son, Jesus, on my behalf as payment for my sins. We love to look at the beautiful and see God. You have to look at the hardest and ugliest thing to really know who this God is. He is willing to be known, but we can only know him by means of the cross of Jesus, his great self-revelation for mankind. Isn't that something? Doesn't that defy logic? (laughs) Isn't that different from what we would choose if we were God? And yet this is what he's done and who he is. And I want to invite you to know this God better and love this God more intensely. This God whom we can't comprehend in all of his wonderful, mysterious glory. A God so powerful that he could create the galaxies with only a word and yet so humble that he would take a cross. A God so transcendent And unattainable. And yet in such close proximity. And a God that is so just. That he required full payment for sins committed against him. Even though it meant the death of his perfect son. And yet so merciful. That he will save the greatest rebel who whispers a confession of trust in Jesus with his dying breath. God is all of those at the same time. This is the God who is, and best of all, he is willing to be known. He has demonstrated that by his condescension to us, by his presence with us, in his revelation for us. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable are his ways. God, we have no power of our own to know you. And yet we look at the lengths that you have gone to in order to be known by us. Amazing Father. Thank you for your gracious condescension to us. We just can't thank you enough for your presence with us. That means everything to us. And Father, for your revelation of showing us who you are at such a great cost to yourself, the blood of your own son, we thank you. And we're thankful that we have eternal ages to give you thanks in your presence. And even that will not be long enough. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name.